0: We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car Was this unidentified flying object. Can you prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body? You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork we investigate stories of the strange and the mysterious sometimes ghosts, monsters, UFOs and we especially like when those things show up in fiction so we can talk about the back and forth between reality and fiction and that's what we're dealing with on this particular episode when we talk about the book and film versions of Picnic at Hanging Rock. So I'm recording this, this is my my valentine's day episode and i'm recording about a week before and folks it is cold it is cold as as all hell here in the cabin it's trying really hard to snow it doesn't snow very often down here in the south our climate is so maritime but uh, it's just cold enough to do it the the weather on the news keeps threatening that we're going to have some sort of beast from the east once again and may maybe by the time you've heard this that will already have happened but at the moment it's just Really, really, really cold. So, I've got the fire going and I've got a beer open, and I'm excited to talk about Picnic at Hanging Rock, one of my favorite books and one of my favorite films, and uh, both, of course, taking place on Valentine's Day, so appropriate for this time of year. Now, in terms of spoilers, I'm going to say that both of them are, are similar enough. Both the film and the book are similar enough that you can enjoy this episode if you've only read the book or if you've only seen the film, which I suppose is probably more likely. I will be spoiling things, although strangely enough, as you may be aware, this is a a story that's kind of difficult to spoil because it's uh, it's about the lack of answers. It's about the lack of revelation and kind of how we deal with that. Hopefully, after listening, you'll be excited and interested enough, maybe to take this a bit further. So, if you've um if you've only seen the film, perhaps you'll consider reading the book. If you've only read the book, perhaps you should definitely consider watching the film. And if you really want even more, there is, of course, always the 2018 um, miniseries, which is six episodes, and it's okay. It's worth it's worth adding to your your uh, head canon of uh, picnic and hanging rock if you're really 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 into it as i am myself now if you're a fan of the show as always folks we have the buy me a coffee going a few people helped out there this week which is really 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 appreciated so huge thanks there i do drink a lot of coffee here at the cabin it's not just kind of snobby craft beers Uh, the the black black gold does me as well so if, you, if you're if you enjoying the episodes, folks, it's a nice way to say thanks in a, in a very non-committal way. It's just a once-off if you want it to be. And we also have mugs and t-shirts with our logo and they're very stylish and they say... Well, the mugs have the logo on the front and on the back they say critical, not cynical, which is the approach I try to take for matters of the, the strange. If you don't want to do any of that stuff, you can always leave us reviews or find us on the socials and, uh, like, share things. It's really, really helpful or... Share one episode that you like with one person who you think might like it. So, as always, I am on Twitter where I am at Strange Ireland and Instagram Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Check out all of my recent attempts to take bad photographs that imitate uh, really heavy black metal albums, because that's a weird phase that I'm going through. So, couple of fun commentaries uh, to talk about before we get into the picnic itself. So. Uh, Barry Shepherd who is the host of History Now and I'll put a link to that because you should absolutely check that one out for anyone with um, an interest in in history of Ireland and beyond. Barry does an amazing show and he's also he's got a background uh, or or a, a deep knowledge and appreciation for wrestling. Of course we've done our second Hulk Hogan ep- Hulk Hogan episode recently which is weird and a bit different and not what we usually cover but you know we do fun silly things occasionally and Barry said, Finally listened to part two of Hogan. My fellow my fellow wrestling freak friends have listened as well, and we all really enjoy them. I made the mistake of starting to listen to the Undertaker interview with Joe Rogan. About a minute in this is something we talked about on that episode. About a minute in, Rogan says you know, there's there's been a study, and he doesn't give the source, that says lockdowns don't work, and Undertaker says yeah, and that's when I turned off. <laughs> to hell with that. So thanks again for those episodes. Really great. Also listened to the Close Encounters episode recently, and really great. So thanks, Barry. That's lovely to hear. We did an episode about my feelings and, and my brother Donald's feelings about Joe Rogan and sort of the responsibility of podcasters who showcase slightly questionable content and um, you know my feelings about that are complicated but I do stand by that episode even though it was some time ago now but uh, Barry also mentions uh, this made me laugh that that uh he says, you wouldn't believe the amount of weirdness and stupidity that are within the, the wrestling inside world. He said, he's pretty sure that some uh, some of the people involved in wrestling in Belfast back in the 90s, he said, I'm pretty sure at least one of them didn't realize it was fake until he began training. <laughs> so that gave me uh, a laugh. Thanks, Barry, for that. Um, also, uh, listener Andrew in Cork sent in a fantastic ghost story. I really like this. Anyone who does listen from Cork you should you should recognize this location so he says um he's talking about a, a red house which is a landmark building near wellington bridge at the start of the road called sunday as well I, I i would imagine most corkonians would recognize this it's a kind of a a historical building that's um by the river jutting out into the river the bright red color um victorian maybe even older i'm not sure it's it's a gorgeous building for a very long time now it's been empty and had a lot of scaffolding up around it and it was kind of ugly looking but the um, it's i I understand that work on it has just been completed and finally it, it looks really really nice again it's a very handsome house a very uh, historical kind of addition to that bit of the city so andrew says he was involved in some of this work on the building and he says we were doing various groundworks over the course of two three weeks at the red house one day i was left alone in the house doing various jobs I went out the front to get my tool bag from my car when there were two middle-aged women walking by. They asked me if I was in the house alone. They went on to proclaim that they would never do such a thing, given the history of the place. Some months before work began on the property, a young man died in the basement of the then-derelict and abandoned dwelling. Being a staunch non-believer in any superstition, I brushed it off with a light-hearted smile and laugh I worked for approximately two hours in the house after that. At the end of the day, I packed up my bits and proceeded to leave through the arched entrance of the house. As I passed underneath the arch, something grabbed at my high-vis jacket. Knowing that there was no possible way my jacket had been snagged, as the entrance itself was much wider than myself and with no overgrowth, I I turned anyway to see what could have happened, and there was nothing there. So yeah, I I know that building really well. I I go running past it all the time and um, I've never heard any ghost stories about it. So I really like to hear uh, local ghost stories or stories of legends of any sort that are not the usual ones you hear all the time. So as always, uh, get in touch if you have one and I'd be very happy to read that out. Now, before we get stuck into Picnic at Hanging Rock, my beer for the evening is Fox's Rock American Style IPA, which is pretty easy to get in some supermarkets around here given lockdown it's not always easy to get the fancier stuff at the moment but it's very pleasant uh, very pleasant IPA indeed and that will do us perfectly well for talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock so what do we know about this it is a book by Joan Lindsay from 1967 and very famously it's a film by Peter Weir from 1975 and spoilers as much as the very opening of the of the story goes i'm going to take this from wikipedia because i'm I'm rubbish at uh, at summarizing but at appleyard college a private boarding school for upper class girls near mount macedon victoria in australia a picnic is being planned for the students under the supervision of mrs appleyard the school's head mistress the picnic entails a day trip to hanging rock on saint valentine's day in the year 1900. One of the students, Sarah, who is in trouble with Mrs Appleyard, is not allowed to go. Sarah's close friend Miranda goes without her. When they arrive, the students lounge about and eat a lunch. Afterwards, Miranda goes to climb the monolith with classmates Edith, Irma and Marion, despite being forbidden to do so. The girl's mathematics teacher, Greta McCraw, follows behind them separately. Miranda, Marion and Irma climb still higher in a trance-like state, while Edith flees in terror. She returns to the picnic in hysterics, disorientated and with no memory of what occurred. Miss McCraw is also nowhere to be accounted for except for being seen by Edith who passed her ascending the rock in her underwear. The school scours the rock in search of the three girls and their teacher, but they are never found. So, we have another Australia story. We haven't been to Australia on the show since the Yowie episode way back at the beginning. And uh, to anyone who plays a drinking game, whenever I have a personal connection to a location and I'm always saying, oh, I, I lived near there or some such, I've never been to Australia, unlike many, many, many Irish people. Alright, some background then to Picnic at Hanging Rock. What I'm going to do is talk a little bit about Australia as a setting for horror. I mean, is Picnic at Hanging Rock horror? I think so. I think it's that kind of wickerman style horror where the horror takes place in broad daylight without any obvious monsters or creatures or murderers or anything of the sort. It's almost like a horror of, of absence, but we will talk about the different kinds of horror and um and whether picnic at Hanging Rock fits into any of those categories a little bit later. It's kind of an uncategorizable story in many ways however i i do I really like Australia as a setting for weird tales and I'm going to talk a little bit about that first. My source for this is Australian Ghost Stories, which is edited by James Doig and this is. One of those Wordsworth editions, those kind of cheap and cheerful collections of out-of-print materials. They're still going, I believe. You can still see them in bookshops today. And they, they sometimes have really interesting collections of stuff. Some some of the uh, collections are well curated. Anyway, this one is is mostly about... Well, it's called Australian Ghost Stories, but... Weirdly, um, I, I remember being disappointed when I first bought this because a good chunk of the stories don't take place in Australia. They either... Basically, it's either Australian writers from Victorian times kind of like aping the then-popular British ghost stories and having them set in London, or, um, you know, stories that happen all around sort of Australasia, other parts of that that part of the world. And I I always guessed that the editor here actually had a hard time in selecting, in finding, a a good number of Australia-set supernatural stories and I think that is due to something that is important in our discussion of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is the, the the colonial culture of Australia and how they themselves viewed themselves and how they viewed Australia and how they viewed the difference between their own culture and the Aboriginal cultures. And all of that stuff, of course, is going to be lurking just below the surface of any reading of Picnic at Hanging Rock. So in in the beginning of this book, James Doig says about... Um, horror in Australia now he's he's talking specifically about gothic horror that this collection is kind of taken with gothic the gothic flavor of horror in particular mostly because of the time the timeline it's dealing with which is Victorian Um, and and I don't think necessarily picnic at hanging rock is I don't know that gothic is the most um, um, uh, relevant type of horror that it might fit into but horror nonetheless so he says Australia was similar to the United States in that it was considered too young to have accumulated the necessary props for a successful Gothic novel, in his 19 or 1856 essay *The Fiction Fields of Australia*, the critic Frederick Sinnett wrote, "There may be plenty of dilapidated buildings, but not one the dilapidation of which is sufficiently venerable by age to tempt the wandering footsteps of the most arrant parvenu of a ghost that ever walked by night." It must be admitted that Mrs. Radcliffe, that's Anne Radcliffe, a famous English writer of Mysteries of Udolpho, which was a famous foundational uh, Gothic novel. It must be admitted that Mrs. Radcliffe's genius would be quite thrown away here and we must reconcile ourselves to the conviction that the founding of a second Castle of Otranto, another foundational Gothic novel, can hardly be laid in Australia during our time. So if you're familiar with uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, this might be giving you flashbacks of Mrs Appleyard, you know, talking about poetry and uh, demanding only classic, classical and time-tested English poetry and none of this Australian shit and definitely no making up your own poetry. He goes on to say, how could Australia produce a recognisable Gothic literature without a single age-weary medieval castle, replete with secret passages and trapdoors, or the background of superstitious terror and ignorance that Victorians saw as characteristic of the Middle Ages? Again, yes. So this this obsession that Australia can't possibly be a good setting for a horror story because it just isn't old enough. By which, of course, they mean. It doesn't have a centuries-long European culture with a written history for them to use in the same way that uh, Gothic literature and other kinds of weird fiction were using at the time. He then writes, Marcus Clarke expressed this otherworldly quality in his preface to the collected poems of Adam Lindsay Gordon published in 1876. And then he quotes Marcus saying, I like this, What is the dominant note of Australian scenery? That which is the dominant note of Edgar Allan Poe's poetry, Weird Melancholy. The Australian mountain forests are funereal, secret, stern. Their solitude is desolation. They seem to stifle in their black gorges a story of sullen despair. No tender sentiment is nourished in their shade. In the Australian forest no leaves fall. The savage shout among the the rock clefts. From the melancholy gums... Strips of white bark hang and rustle. The very animal life of these frowning hills is either grotesque or ghostly. Great grey kangaroos hop noiselessly over the coarse grass. Flights of white cockatoos stream out, shrieking like evil souls. The sun suddenly sinks and the peaks burst out into horrible peals of semi-human laughter. That's great. This is much better. I like this. So, uh, you know, this is a a guy writing in actual Victorian times, I think quite accurately spotting the potential in the Australian scenery for really, really great stories of unease, stories of the weird. And already, I, I hope you can tell that this is already wrapped up in a very colonial idea of Australia. The idea that you are somewhere which is weird and strange and different. You are somewhere that is fundamentally alien, to your you know European settler sensibilities, and of course that again is, is what hanging hanging rock is is all about later on in this same collection, there's a short story called "The Bunyip" by Rosa campbell prade who's an seems to be an absolutely fascinating woman who i I must find out more about, and I think I warrants perhaps an entire episode by herself, given. The sort of stuff she's written, her her obsession with spiritualism, uh, the the crazy adventurous life she's had in in Australia as a, as a settler person, but the bunyip, of course, you've probably heard, is is a well known. I mean, on the face of it, it's it's a cryptid. It shows up in cryptozoological literature as a an Australian mystery animal, but it comes from Aboriginal folklore. It's a it's a creature of the Dream Time. It's it's a it's a creature with sort of mystical or magical or even a religious connotations. But um, at, at the beginning of this, uh, Rosa campbell prayed again writing in, in late Victorian times, feels the need to almost apologise for Australia's lack of, you know, a European history and how dare I set, you know, a spooky story here when there aren't any Gothic castles around. And she says, Everyone who has lived in Australia has heard of the Bunyip. It is the one respectable flesh-curling horror of which Australia can boast... The old world has her tales of ghoul and vampire, of Lorelei, Spook and Pixie, but Australia has nothing but her bunyip. There never were any fauns in the eucalyptus forest, nor any naiads in the running creeks. No mythological hero left behind him stories of wonder and enchantment. No white man's hand has carved records of a poetic past on the grey, volcanic-looking boulders that overshadow some lonely gullies which I know. There are no sepulchers hewn in the mountain rampart surrounding a certain dried-up lake, probably the crater of an extinct volcano, familiar to my childhood, and which in truth suggests possibilities of a forgotten city of Kor Well, thanks, Rosa. Nice nice reference there to, of course, The Lost City from H.R. Haggard's novel She. kor of course, is where she lives in, in East Africa, a, a mystical city. Kind of nice to see the back and forth between the different strands of weird fiction at this time and just how widespread these ideas were. It's it's cool to me to imagine this kind of uh, settler colonial lady living at the end of the 19th century somewhere. Uh, she she was in a very remote district, I believe, and reading these English novels about explorers in Africa. Fantastic. So, again, this piece of writing is amazing because on the one hand she's she's saying... Oh, Australia doesn't have the requisite, you know, spooky old houses to tell ghost stories. And at the same time, she's describing the landscape in a way that just shows how ripe it is for a very different kind of horror, which, if the phrase folk horror is coming into your head with all of these lurid descriptions of the weird melancholia of the Australian landscape, then, you know, if there's been some back and forth online recently about what constitutes folk horror. I don't really want to get into it, but in as much as it... You know, an important element of it is man's relationship with landscape. I think it is absolutely on the money with this sort of thinking and with Picnic at Hanging Rock in general. So I don't want to go too much further without mentioning um, a, a sort of a project I came across online called Miranda Must Go. Now, Miranda, of course, being one of the main characters of Picnic at Hanging Rock, she is the central of the three girls who disappears. She is the most luminous, the most beautiful, the most magnetic. And to this day, she holds a special place in the hearts of Australians. And um, her story, the fictional story of her disappearance, is very much the main thing for which the Hanging Rock location, which of course is real, it's a real place, is is remembered and this isn't entirely unproblematic because of course Hanging Rock being a real place in Australia was well known and probably or almost certainly was sacred to various groups of indigenous people who lived there. So in particular it was important to the Wurong, the Wurundjeri and the Tongarong peoples. Now most of those peoples were forcibly removed from the area and much much tragedy much of it unrecorded or sort of not willingly remembered by historians has taken place there. And if you go there now as a as a tourist, and it's a it's a big tourist place, most of the written material, most of the interpretation there, concerns the fictional picnic at Hanging Rock, with information about Miranda and the the fictional disappearance of the girls and people love this story people have people come from far and wide they dress in victorian dress they shout miranda miranda as they climb up uh, the sides of the rock people love this story and that's fantastic that's amazing i'm here about to talk about the story for maybe an hour so i'm part of this as well however this this movement um miranda must go the idea is that you know, stories like this are used to cover up other stories. That's And and they just focus on who is being foregrounded here and who is being backgrounded. And while any individual novel on its own, you know, can be seen as harmless, so Picnic at Hanging Rock is uh, a very white novel, and it's a novel by a white lady writing about white settler colonial Australian society, and that's fine on the face of it, but as part of a wider cultural movement you start to see that you know there are there are issues here as well. So a little context, I, th- I think, might be important. So the the Miranda must go campaign it seems to be defunct. It seems to have shut up shop about a year ago. But I'm just mentioning it because that the lack of actual indigenous people in the novel is is blinding. And um, it, it's this is very complicated. And I again I know I'm dealing with fire, but the the idea of the Aboriginal people as representatives of the continent of the land, in effectively a pseudo folk horror story, is very great and it kind of underpins everything else that happens in in the novel. The anxieties of the settler society, the awareness that somewhere at the back of their mind they know that they are the products of a grossly unfair system. It's it's there. It's beneath everything that happens, but it's it's never on stage and no native person or aboriginal person has, has any scene in this book they don't say a single line there's one aboriginal tracker is mentioned for like one single line and then never again partly this might be because of joan Lindsay's own lifestyle and and the life she knew and she was just recording it the way she she knew and thinking about it the way she was used to on the other hand w- w- like i said when taken as just an element of the larger australian sort of whitewashing it is a little bit troubling now let's try and put this in context so i have a paper here called fear and loathing in the australian bush by kathleen Steele, and i'm just going to read a section here she says by the late 1890s aborigines all but disappeared from literature and the landscape in the preceding period became increasingly described as containing a darker spiritual aura A resonant, pathetic fallacy that impressed upon Europeans an idea of solitude and desolation. The perception arose of the continent as a blank page, on which any image could be imposed, an enormous blackboard on which Europeans scribbled a tabula rasa, sort of like a blank slate I guess, on which the European consciousness was expected to write. The insistent lack of acknowledgement of the indigenous people or their history, and the very real presence of Aborigines caused an uneasy contradiction at the heart of the Europeans quote unoccupied country. Early representations of the Aboriginal as an unhistoried embodiment of the malevolence of the harsh Australian environment conflated into a timeless, demonic landscape that threatened and fascinated white Australians. The Aboriginal presented an other that must be subdued, a prehistory history history had to fight, a prehistory that fell victim to unconscious amnesia affecting all Australian culture, from political rhetoric to the perception of space or landscape itself. Wow, so that's that's strong stuff. And um, anyone with a little knowledge of of Australia's history will see this is not at all overstating the case. So, while while on the one hand, the, the the place of the Aborigines and the the discomfort of the Europeans having you know displanted and put themselves on top of this ancient system is palpable and and affects every bit of this novel. At the same time, the the very lack of any Aboriginal voice in it directly is troubling and i suppose you could argue that the aboriginal people are represented by the landscape in in a in a way but even that is not devoid of some slightly icky uh, connotations so there's been a fascination with this book ever since it came out and i think it contains within it some really fundamental basic stuff that is is just catnip to us and and a lot of it has got to do with the mystery, the fact, the sense of the mystery, the fact that it's never resolved, and it ties into like like elements of true crime that we're fascinated by, mysterious disappearances, which are of course uh, an evergreen subject of you know paranormal topics of all kinds, paranormal books and podcasts, stuff like the Dyatlov Pass or the the missing girls, uh, the Dutch girls from Panama, which is a story I'm particularly taken with. Um, the the missing Scottish lighthouse keeper is any story where there's something we don't know something is never solved will always I think be fascinating to us but let's let's go further than that um the fact that they are these like young pretty upper class school I mean they're that's that's huge and that makes me think of what in the US is sometimes called like missing white girl syndrome which is this idea that you know, bad things happen to people from various uh, disadvantaged groups in America all the time. And it's just kind of expected, you know, oh, well, you know, they live these rough lives and uh, some of them go missing sometime. I've seen this myself uh, in rural parts of Canada where you go into, you, um, you know, you go into these little police stations that are off the off the off the, the motorways or the highways. And they always have these pictures of missing girls up on the wall. And you know the percentage of it depends on where you are in Canada, but there are places where they are all Indigenous people, and that's you know you don't you you're not hearing about these cases, but stereotypically at least, when you know a young pretty white woman goes missing, that's all over the papers. So that's that's what Americans call the missing white woman syndrome. Married to this is the very particularly Australian historical idea of you know children going missing in the bush as it were so their conception of themselves the, the settler white settler Australians as being you know the the small bastions of civilization in this vast empty wilderness to use the tabula rasa idea and ignore the millions of people who were there who were being wiped out at the time you've got this idea that you're surrounded by this hostile landscape, and your little kid could just wander off the ranch and take a few steps into the bush and then something awful would happen to them and this This bits of this idea still show up in the like in my part of the world there's this like joke about Australia that like everything in Australia wants to kill you because the you know it 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 has a lot more venomous or poisonous wildlife than other parts of the world. There's a famous painting which you'll see if you look up picnic at hanging rock on wikipedia and it's called the lost child by mccubbin and um the the imagery of it is it's just a little kid standing on their own amongst all these gum trees looking a little bit despondent and it's slightly i don't know if impressionist is the word but it's got a kind of a a foggy haze to it and it looks a bit muggy and a bit dreamy um which you know ultimately was the visual style for peter weir's picnic at hanging rock film in 1975 and is often seen as one of the style of pictures that might have influenced Joan Lindsay when she wrote Picnic at Hanging Rock. First, of many editor interruptions here, uh, she was also influenced very much by the painting At the Hanging Rock by William Ford in 1875, which again, if you take a look at online, I think you'll find it will remind you very much of the imagery of the film. She was, of course, a very talented artist herself and, and a landscape landscape painter and, and many critics have pointed out over the years that this kind of painterly style creeps into her creeps into her writing as well as her um her work her, her painting work in terms of like these these unresolved mysteries these weird disappearances as a kid i had books full of full of these stories and i i when i was very small i utterly believed that you know, the universe was big and weird and strange and and these mysterious disappearances just happened, like as if the universe could somehow swallow you up if you happened to be, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm thinking of the story of David Lang, which is a famous story from the, the southern states of America where this farmer in the 19th century walks out into the middle of his field in full view of, you know, his family back at the farmhouse and just disappears. And when the when the kids run over into the field... They see uh, a weird patch of dead grass and they think that they can hear his voice calling them from somewhere far away. And this story eventually w- was traced to, a, it, it was ripped off of a short story by Ambrose Bierce, who himself disappeared under mysterious circumstances, uh, I believe following the campaign of Pancho Villa in, in 19, uh, 1916, something like that and in mexico but it, it was an example of a fictional story that took off a fictional story of a mysterious disappearance and a story with no resolve which was inspired by a short story called the disappearance of crossing a field which itself had no resolution and somehow that makes these stories come alive and make people want to believe them and people utterly believed that picnic at hanging rock was real now this was partly deliberate joan Lindsay. Um, and her editors deliberately kind of put this ambiguous element into the framing of the story to make it feel, make it seem like it's real. Uh, The story itself contains various pseudo-journalistic moments where there's excerpts taken from, you know, newspaper articles about the school and something about the way it's written just makes it feel sort of like documentary. And most importantly, at the very beginning on the first page, she writes... Whether a picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves, as the fateful picnic took place in the year nineteen hundred, and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead. It hardly seems important, so this was to this little paragraph was to create you know decades of speculation about whether the book is real. Lindsay herself was famously tight-lipped on the subject. I definitely had books of the mysteries and the unknown when I was a kid that occasionally included this story. They would say, you know, here's a story that some people believe and some people don't. We don't really know whether it's true. So it had a long afterlife as an urban legend, which apparently in Australia, even today, it's not uncommon to find people who still believe that it's true, even though, you know, there's so much <laughs> evidence out there that it's just a novel. And we we a lot is known about Lindsay and the way she wrote it and all of that. But people don't want to um to let a mystery go. As, as I always say, Harry Price wrote, people don't want the debunked, they want the bunk. So just to get us up to speed, once again, very quickly, it's Valentine's Day in 1900. There's a school called Appleyard College. It's very uptight and posh and Victorian. And Mrs. Appleyard wants all of the young girls there to be proper young ladies so that they can be sent off to you know, high society in Melbourne or even in Europe. And they go on this picnic at Hanging Rock, which is this ancient beauty spot. It's a geological oddity. And a few of the girls disappear on the rock and never come back. Those girls are, of course, Miranda, who is the, the blonde, who is ethereal and dreamy and, and wondrous and just seems to enchant everybody she meets. Irma, who is also very beautiful and very charming, but is being groomed for kind of like an upper-class life back in Europe and sort of has has one foot in the real world, unlike Miranda. Also with them is Marion, who is very intelligent and scholarly. She's into mathematics and science, and she's quite analytical about everything. And one of the teachers disappears with them as well, and that is Miss McCraw. She is, of course, the mathematics teacher and seems to think about nothing other than geometry and uh, and, and Pythagoras' theorem and all of that sort of thing. So after the girls and the teacher disappears, chaos ensues. the The rest of the novel talks about the effects of their disappearance on the town, on the school, and eventually everything begins to unravel, especially Mrs. Appleyard herself. so i'll just point out some obvious stuff let's get the obvious stuff out of the way and and quickly do the the usual colonial interpretation of the book this is the sort of analysis i think you'll you'll read just about anywhere someone is talking about picnic at hanging rock and i think it's very valid but it's it's not unique to me and that's that the apple yard and the school represents the you know the forces of the colonial settler world and then the the hanging rock represents the you know the ancient, brooding, mysterious, quote unquote, um, um, native world, or Australia, or or Earth, if you like, if you want to go that far, and I, I think, I think you can because of the timeline we're dealing with, which which I'll get to, but. You know, let's let's just take that to its natural conclusion and and point out some bits and pieces. So, you know, the school is all about rules and rigidity. Appleyard is always um she holds herself to a high regard in how she behaves. She's always very controlled. Um, this school, you know, the the children have to wear the all of this Victorian regalia, and when they're going out into the bush. You know, they're not allowed to take their gloves off until they've passed through the town, you know, lest anyone think that they were were not, you know, perfectly well-behaved young ladies. And Appleyard herself is obsessed with time, and time is a very important element of both this book and Joan Lindsay's own life um appleyard is obsessed with what time it is when are the group coming back there's always clocks ticking around her she always, the, the time almost ser- serves as a, an example of her control and her power and um as things unravel for her after the disappearances you know she stops winding her watch and her clock properly and she forgets what time it is and she becomes confused about time and time itself becomes this weird malleable thing and i i think the obvious implication here is that time the way we understand it as as europeans is a an idea unique to us and not necessarily one that every every other group of people um understands the same way we do so that imposing time upon the australian landscape makes no sense because it's a completely different system that operates um according to its own rules and those rules might end up being very very different small quote here from the book while the girls are at hanging rock itself having their picnic Mademoiselle, the French teacher, says, So I understand, Miranda. You have your pretty little diamond watch. Can you tell us the time? Miranda says, I'm sorry, Mademoiselle. I don't wear it anymore. I can't stand hearing it ticking all day long just above my heart. Miranda, of course, being probably the character at least connected to the everyday rules of life and perhaps the most tuned into the eternal And I think this difference of understanding of, of like, something so basic about the universe as time really helps when it comes to kind of interpreting the open-ended mystery of the novel, which is that you have different groups of people here looking at the universe in completely different ways, using almost incompatible worldviews, so that the the disappearance of the girls on the rock might make no sense to us because we perceive the universe according to certain rules and norms and it's only when we free ourselves from those that maybe we can understand what's really going on and indeed I do see this as potentially a horror novel from some points of view but more of a novel of transcendence like something I guess I'm a greenie at the end of the day I'm a, I'm a conservationist and I see I see the the earth and nature as positive influences in almost every work even if that isn't always the intent of the author you know you, you can have horror novels where nature is is a threat or a danger to the main characters but I guess my own personal headcanon is usually that well you know either they were some somewhere they weren't supposed to be or they were interacting with the system they didn't take the time to understand or or something along those lines so I do see this as effectively I, I think Joan Lindsay's attitude towards the disappearance of the girls is effectively a positive one. So you've got everything within the boundaries of Appleyard College, which is a representative of very English colonial society, imposing its Englishness upon the landscape. And um, this can be seen just about everywhere in the post-colonial world. Here in Ireland, you can go and see these great old big houses that were built during the colonial period. And the obsession with, especially during Victorian times, and I know I'm being a bit stereotypical here, but you, I've seen this, the obsession with neatness and order and putting things in the right places and and taming nature, you know, turning turning wild landscape. If you go out to the west of Ireland in, in places like Galway, you can see these... Uh, Uh, amazing thinking of a place called kylemore with this amazing gorgeous sort of gothic looking big house and then these gardens these victorian gardens where everything is neat and orderly and then just outside the boundaries of it and there are this there's this wild rugged landscape and it's such a victorian obsession and especially with the language that is used about england in these days you know england is like the garden of europe or you know we have made a garden of nature and the idea that we need to take everything that's Wild and beyond our control and and make it into something that we can control, and that 's what all of that is what Apple Yard College represents. The rock, on the other hand, represents everything that the europeans don't understand it is It is ancient it is immeasurably ancient in fact it's the the, the novel posits constantly that its very age is obscene and somehow scary edith the the kind of girl who's constantly described as being kind of silly and small minded and who's possibly one of the least people the least receptive people to the call of the rock in the novel. She is horrified by the mere idea that the rock is a million years old. This... This is is like obscene to her because you know I, I I guess it speaks to the settler anxiety that they've only been present on this strange new wild continent for such a short period of time and they don't want to be reminded of this even subconsciously. I'm going to read a little bit of text here from *Fear and Loathing in the Australian Bush* by Kathleen Steele. She writes, "The apparent timelessness of Australia is tested against received notions of European time and the permanence of the." Uh, of the colony juxtaposes to natural and historical time when the picnic party is at the rock time becomes strange people's clocks stop people are unsure at what time it is everything seems like dreamy and, and dreamlike and formless and this is done very well in the film by peter weir he marvel he marvelously captures this vibe and um, famously by uh, going into a, a bridal shop and asking for various kinds of bridal cloth and putting them over the front of the lenses to give that kind of Victorian uh, sort of soft focus to these scenes that make them feel hazy and mysterious and dreamlike. Here's a, a quote from that segment of the novel showing quite how separate the colonisers are from the world around them. Joan Lindsay writes, Insulated from natural contacts with earth, air and sunlight, by corsets pressing on the solar plexus, by voluminous petticoats, cotton stockings and kid boots, the drowsy, well-fed girls lounging in the shade were no more a part of their environment than figures in a photograph album, arbitrarily posed against a backcloth of cork rocks and cardboard trees. A little bit later on, a character named Albert, who is also on the rock, is climbing and thinks to himself, he reminded himself that he was in Australia now. Australia, where anything might happen. In England, everything had been done before, quite often by one's own ancestors, over and over again. So that's the usual colonial interpretation. I, I absolutely think it's valid. And um, we're going to go a little bit deeper. I want to talk about the, the period of this. So this book kind of exists in two timelines at the same time, which is, which is wonderful given the topic and given Joan Lindsay's own personal weirdness about time, which, which we'll get to. So it's set in on Valentine's Day, 14th of um, February in the year 1900, but it was actually written in 1967 and in in a very real way this is a work of two eras because remember this is a pretty much an urban legend in Australia this is a story that people either believe is real or kind of want to believe is real in a, in a weird kind of a cosplay sort of a sense so people think of it as a not as a period piece but as an actual piece of a, a story from the year 1900 with all of the victoriana slash edwardiana that comes with that and this is largely because Lindsay herself is of that era she was born in 1896 and one of the seeds of this story was that when she she always claimed that she made her first trip there as a four-year-old in the year 1900 that's why she set the novel at that time now whether she really remembers this or whether this became part of her own sort of personal story i don't know i don't think many people Really remember what happened to them when they were four but maybe she did anyway the 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 location had always been a huge important memory for her and not only that but her lifestyle was quite like the one of the girls in the story she was a product of that you know edwardian period and she went to a sort of a posh you know upper class a private girls school called Clyde not too far away which is quite similar to Appleyard in in some ways and they literally made trips to Hanging Rock uh, once a year as part of their curriculum so she would have grown up in the society she's talking about it's, it's it's fascinating to me that she's writing this in the 60s but having lived through the period she's talking about so yes it's a period story but it's also mixed with real life memories and and perhaps a real life understanding of what that society was like. But then on the other hand, this is being published in in, in the summer of love, nineteen sixty seven. And people forget this because it's so well written as a period piece, and because of all of the documentary feeling stuff that's in it, people don't see it as a postmodern novel, which it absolutely is, and there is a ton of sort of you know, 60s, new age stuff in here if you want to go there. It's subtle. It's not in your face. People aren't, you know, talking about crystal skulls and, and, you know, burning incense and and wearing tie-dye, but the the looseness with which it approaches time and space and philosophy and and even religion is amazingly postmodern and amazingly 60s, to be honest. And I love it. I think it's brilliant. I think it couldn't possibly... Have been written at any other time, or you know, it would have been very different if it had. I think the film marvel marvelously portrays this attitude, with the use of panpipes on the soundtrack. Now, some people really don't like this. I think I think it's dated, very badly for a lot of people. The kind of goofy panpipe stuff, but for me, the film, you know, if it hadn't been made in the mid '70s, which, as we always say, was a time when the paranormal the supernatural and kind of outgrowths of new age thinking were absolutely huge it would not have been the same you know there there's something about the fact that it was made at that time where you know these various musical movements electronic music and and progressive rock and all these things are being used to symbolize that supernatural weirdness and again it wouldn't it wouldn't have been the same if it was made at any other time i have to wonder if it had been made in the sixties, would they have used sort of folk revival stuff to to suggest that kind of supernatural pagan element? Maybe they would have. Would have been a very different film. Now, I've said that I, I I I interpret this as being a story of characters transcending. They're they're going beyond the world they know and they're ascending to some other way of being. Not everybody not everybody interprets it that way. In fact, Kathleen Steele, who wrote the Fear and Loathing article, and which which is absolutely wonderful. I happens to disagree with me on this basic fact and she reckons there's no evidence anywhere in the novel for a mystical interpretation of what has happened to the girls she says it's far more likely that they were taken away or or kidnapped by some other group and and that there's absolutely no reason to jump to mystical conclusions and I I think I suspect that a careful combing of the novel will show that technically she's correct there is nothing overt And yet there's something about the framing of the story and my own knowledge of Lindsay's own interests and beliefs that make me feel otherwise. To me this is, and and I think most commentators have always interpreted this way, this is a story about these people being somehow subsumed or absorbed by the landscape itself. And I think we we need to take a quick look at the characters involved to try and decide, like, what is this force that has absorbed them and who is it, who is receptive to it, who is it reaching out to and who can hear it and who can't. If you're thinking of Call of Cthulhu, uh, I am as well. So the idea that certain kinds of people are receptive to these, like, supernatural influences and some kinds of people are not. So the main person, of course, is Miranda herself, who is... Um I've seen her written somewhere as described as being nature's aristocrats. She's this like almost supernaturally graceful, beautiful, charismatic, um, relaxed and, and and popular girl who just charms everybody she meets. And some of the other girls are like Sarah is clearly in love with her or infatuated with her in some way. Miranda, unlike most of the girls, is born in Australia. She's not an implant. that's a horrible word to use you know what i mean she's not been she's not been transplanted there from from directly european culture and she seems to come from a family who are obviously wealthy or they wouldn't be she wouldn't be at apple yard but she is from some kind of her family runs some kind of ranch and and she deals with horses and she so she's got that nature connection and the book constantly and the film to be fair constantly compares her to a swan other characters uh, constantly see swans and, and think that she's appearing in front of them. So she's this graceful, ethereal being. So it's it's no surprise that she herself is like the gateway between the two worlds, right? She's the most susceptible person to being taken away and spirited away. And right at the beginning of the story, she says to Sarah, you must learn to love someone else because I won't be here for much longer and i mean on a surface level it's like well she's a senior at the school she won't be there for much longer she's gone soon but on the other on the other hand it's like she knows that she's got a foot in the other world and that it's only a matter of time before she's kind of spirited away somehow and to me it's utter this this disappearance it's it's a horror it's a horror story for the people who are left behind because they're angry and confused and and maybe jealous but for Miranda, it's a positive thing and a natural thing, and it, you know, something like this was coming for her, and she understood it instinctively, if not, if not intellectually. Two other of the women who are taken up as well are Marion Quaid, Quaid is a cool name, isn't it? And the teacher Miss McGraw, and both of them represent sort of analytic cold, cool analytical science, which is interesting to me because they're 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 taken up by the rock subsumed by the rock but they're coming from an utterly different place than miranda is their intellect rather than emotion and yet somehow they are susceptible to the call of the rock the call of the earth and i guess there is that point of view which sees certain sciences like mathematics and physics as being like the the language of of God or of the spirits or of the universe that you are you're dealing with these really really fundamental rules of how existence works and therefore when you do these things you are communing when you keep your mind on this level you are in some way communing with the infinite infinite you could say in a way that their minds are on higher things and um, you know these these ultimate rules of the universe rather than on the mundane day-to-day which is the mindset that prevents you from being taken up by the rock so for example Edith who Lindsay treats really horribly, actually. She's constantly telling us that Edith is, like, you know, dumpy and unfit and moany, and she's clearly socially awkward, and I always felt sorry for her, but it, it's portrayed in an almost eugenics kind of a way that some people are just born to be good and and deserve to transcend, and some people are just not. So Edith is only concerned with, you know, her own discomfort, and she's she's always worried about what her mother would think. And, you know, young girls shouldn't do this or do that. And it's no surprise that she's not susceptible to the call of the rock. As they're climbing up the rock, Edith is only complaining about her discomfort. And uh, she, she's never she's never going to leave this world. She's never going to transcend. But the most interesting character then, who is kind of half on half, I suppose, is Irma. Because Irma is... Like Miranda, she's graceful, she's beautiful, she's charismatic and magnetic, and kind of kind of relaxed and in tune with her own feelings. But on the other hand, she very much has a foot in the, in the real world because she's so rich. She's like some sort of European aristocracy, and her whole life is mapped out ahead of her, and her parents are sending her to this school so that afterwards she can re- marry some rich guy and go off to Europe and live in the high society. So I guess at the back of her mind, whatever her personality is like, at the back of her logical mind, she knows that she is going back to this sort of mundane or material society. And for that reason, The the Rock takes her in, but then spits her out again. There's an incredible scene later on with Irma, of course, which when, when she returns to the school for one time just to see everybody. And this is a extremely strange scene and it, it has been interpreted in multiple ways. It's when the, the girls of the college are doing some sort of P.E. thing where um, Mademoiselle, who's the young French teacher, is playing the piano and they're doing some sort of exercise or dance or something. And Miranda, or Irma rather, Irma comes in, having been, you know, disappeared, having having vanished off the face of the earth for a period of time. And she's dressed extraordinarily strangely. She She's dressed in this very ornate, very Victorian get-up with a bright red colour. And up until now, all the girls have been wearing white you know, for for purity, for virginity, for for all of the all of that Victorian reasons. But now Irma has gone through this, you know, mysterious transformation, and she's back, and she's symbolized by red, which is not about purity. It, it's about you know, very womanhood, I guess, in in various ways. So the idea is that she's been through this transformation, and now she's on the other side of a barrier. She's on the other side of the veil from them, and they sort of. They somehow instinctively sense this and they're consumed with some sort of horror, some sort of jealousy perhaps that she's moving on and they're not because she literally is. It's her last day at the school and she's off to swan away to a life of luxury in Europe with the uh, hoity-toity upper class. Maybe that's part of it but to them the book insists in this section because they all freak out and they attack her and they scream what happened Irma tell us tell us tell us tell us and the book insists that to them she represents the horror of the rock itself and it's it's very strange moment. so you've got that sort of sexuality thing going on you've got that jealousy thing to me personally with my take on the book it's always been that she's gone through some mystical experience that they have been denied and they're jealous that's that's what I can't I can't help but but feel that but it's it's a scene which has been um, interpreted in many many different ways. I want to talk briefly about the idea that the the rock represents going native, which was a big fear uh, in in colonial times, which was that we have to at all times you know dress and act like Europeans. You get all these ridiculous scenarios where the the English particularly believed you know they had to dress. For dinner, when they were out in India or Africa, and they have to wear the stiff collars and they have to wear the bustles and the corsets and all of these things, which have become a symbol, of course, of Victorian repression. And it's all a bit stereotypical, but I read a lot of colonial era stuff, and and a lot of this did happen. And there was a belief that, you know, we have to, we have to hold ourselves to this high civilization regard, so that the, you know, the servants and the people beneath us don't get ideas and think that, you know, we're not better than they're. So the fear then, of course, is that, heaven forbid, some of these Europeans might actually like the cultures that they're living in and take some of their ideas on board and maybe eat their food or dress the way they do. And, you know, the idea that someone like Miranda, who's supposed to be the flower of English civilization, could instead, you know, become dreamy and flighty and... You know, get sucked into I don't know the dream time or something or some element of of some primal element of Australia would have been a horror to them. I'm reminded of a Ray Bradbury story called "Dark They Were and Golden Eyed," which is about one of his Martian colony stories. I don't think it's in the Martian Chronicles, but it's it's along the same lines, where um a family take over this uh, villa on Mars, which was inhabited by native martians many many years ago and they've all died out now and they merely by being on the planet and you know farming food made in that dirt and drinking that water they start to become they start to have these martian thoughts and then they start to change and their bodies change and by the time the next rocket comes full of colonists uh, they see what they they see the family as being native martians effectively so this fear that you know the the place you're in will change you and you will lose your inherent quote unquote uh, civilization is uh, tremendously important here as well. So let's talk a little bit about Joan Lindsay herself. With with Picnic at Hanging Rock, she basically deliberately set out to write the great Australian novel, and I think by and large she succeeded. I mean, if there's one bit of Australian literature that people outside of australia are aware of it's this book if there's one film one you know arthouse australian film people are familiar with it's it's the film of of this book so yeah i mean a very successful person in 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 that regard she herself was something of a mystic that's the word that her friends used in in describing her and she this this manifested itself in various ways she did have an interest in spiritualism though I think she felt she couldn't express that very openly because of the largely because of the skepticism of her husband but that sort of um, spiritual minded or later perhaps you might say new age thinking absolutely shows up in various other elements of her life and and of this book and I think some aspects of her life shed a little bit of light on the book itself so she was obsessed with time she wrote a, a memoir about her own life called time without clocks and some of the stuff from picnic at hanging rock concerned with time were things that she believed actually happened to her so she never wore a watch she said that uh, clocks stopped around her and other people's watches would stop around her as well and she tended to see time as this sort of artificial constraint imposed upon reality and that that, that was one way of considering the universe, but not the only one. And if you weren't interested in, you know, caring about what year it was or what time it was, then you didn't have to. Worth mentioning as well that though she had been planning on writing some kind of novel about Hanging Rock for many years, when it came time to actually do it, she wrote it very quickly in about two weeks, apparently having sequential dreams of each chapter night after night, and writing each one the next day, being utterly consumed with both the story and the characters. Also in her own life, she treated time very strangely, often seeing things in the landscape that other people couldn't. On one occasion at least, she saw a nun running across the landscape being chased by somebody, and later on found out that this was based on a real historical happening. She also had a great interest in the book An Adventure, which, of course, is about the famous historical time slip of uh, Jordan and Moberly, which we did uh, cover previously on our Time Slips episode. So go and check that out if you are interested. When Peter Weir was shooting the film in the 70s at Hanging Rock itself, Joan Lindsay showed up on set, uh, unknown to at least some of the actors who were on the production, and she would have been quite elderly at this point. Um, there's a story, but apparently the actress who played Miranda... That's Anne-Louise Lambert, but also the actress who played Mademoiselle, the French teacher. That's Helen Morse. Both of them later recorded uh, moments where they were taking some downtime from the set on at least one occasion because the actress had become a little bit, um, I think, I think troubled or upset by just the emotion of doing the scene and and, and stood aside and was approached by this kind of mysterious elderly spidery woman who... Addressed them in the name of their character. She approached, Anne Louise Lambert, and said, "Oh, Miranda, it's you." And um, the actress, both of them, later said that it, it appeared as if she was seeing them partly as their characters. So again, you have this sort of, it for her time, was malleable. Reality was malleable. The the fact that she could show, she could write this story as fiction and then will it into reality and then show up at the location and of course meet the characters she didn't seem that surprised that they might be hanging around so you know I mean she knew there was a film being made but at the same time I think her own personal worldview was such that you know there might have been a little element of something mystical going on there as well and I really I really like that I really like the sound of Joan Lindsay she sounded extremely cool and uh, I, I sort of like her her take on things the idea of different timelines rubbing against each other here reminds me of another of Ray Bradbury's Martian stories. There's one called Night Meeting, where a human from the human Martian colonists uh, lands on the planet, and one evening, traveling across the sands of Mars, bumps into a Martian who he thinks to be long. He thinks their civilization is long dead, and uh, as they have a conversation, it turns out that they're existing in different timelines. The, the Martian looks out upon the dead sea, and, and he sees his city and his civilization alive and and buzzing and the human sees only you know an empty dead sea with the elements of a dead city left over and it turns out that of course they're somehow existing in different timelines but they have briefly coalesced and there's a feeling not only in Picnic and Hanging Rock quite like this but also within certain elements of Joan Lindsay's own life. Now it turns out that um there was, just talking about Miss, Miss McCraw earlier, the, the mathematical teacher, there was an actual Miss McCraw at Clyde School, which is where Joan Lindsay went, and there is a, an article about a trip she made, or a trip she took some of the girls on, to, picnic at, to Hanging Rock in the Clyde School magazine. So again, there's more details there showing um, just quite how much of this stuff was taken from Lindsay's own life. So why St. Valentine's Day? Well, this is one of the clues that eventually tipped people off that this book was not real. In 1900, in the book, Valentine's Day is a Saturday. We now know that in reality it was a Wednesday. So she must she must have picked this date for some personal reason. Within her own life, uh, as a young woman, she eloped to London with uh, the fellow who became her husband. And he, he was some... Um, representative of this sort of still rich but also slightly artsy, slightly bohemian family. And I believe this was mildly scandalous uh, amongst her own people back in Australia. They actually eloped to London on St. Valentine's Day and got married on the same day as well. Aside from that and and that personal connection, I mean, St. Valentine in some traditions is linked with, you know, pre-Christian deities like Eros... Or Pan. We've already mentioned Pan pipes, and I think I've said before on the show that there was a kind of a resurgence of interest in Pan around about the turn of the century. He represented this kind of wild sexual nature that the sort of decadent writers at the very end of the Victorian era were really interested in. He represents everything that is the opposite of the straight-laced British society. He is the wild, he is the the panic of, of nature, he is the, the raw unbridled sort of sexuality and, and he's, he's frequently depicted as a hyper-sexualised icon. So, St. Valentine is, in some traditions, only a slightly sanitized, Christianized form of these older, more pagan, more untamed creatures. And and that, to me at least, seems to fit in with a lot of the themes of the book. And talking about paganism, the the image of the young girls in white, the purity, inevitably makes one think of you know elements of virgin sacrifice from in the ancient world whether those be actual things that were done or just the sort of fears that the the romans and eventually the christians placed on sort of their own fevered interpretations of of pagan cultures the rock itself of course being the place of sacrifice the place where you know this in order for this change to happen these young women particularly have got to disappear they have to be sacrificed in order to make that change the rock itself being volcanic, lest we forget volcanoes, I suppose, maybe symbolising some kind of explosion of, of repressed energy. And certainly at the beginning of the story, when the girls are back at Appleyard College, there is you get the feeling that there are all of these sort of repressed emotions going on um, with, amongst each other. And all of this is being withheld by the, the strictures of Victorian society. Okay, we're going to talk about the final chapter. There is, there is, was what not. There was a a final chapter 18, which is not part of the regular book. So if you have a copy of the book, it only goes to chapter 17. When Joan Lindsay first put this story to her publisher, uh, Sandra Forbes, it had an eight, 18th chapter, which was excised from the book it sort of sort of explained a little bit of what actually happened with the mystery I think this was an incredible I think taking this chapter out was an act of incredible restraint on the parts of Joan Lindsay and Sandra Forbes Forbes asked for this to be done and Lindsay acquiesced it it makes the story so much more mysterious arguably stronger and I, I think the fact that it the, the story effectively is an unsolved mystery is what has you know, made it the focus of such obsession over so many years and allowed it to cast such a shadow. I think it would be a fantastic book either way, honestly. Um, but the fact that they cut this out really allowed it to blossom and and you know, it's a common thing of, you know, people arguing in, in horror movies and books like, do you show the monster? Do you not show the monster? Do you answer the mystery? Do you not answer the mystery? Chopping this last chapter off allowed the story to become something that I think it never would have. And I, I I, think you're absolutely within your rights to finish the book and take that as it is and never go any further and wonder and allow your mind to come up with any number of scenarios to explain the book in whatever way makes kind of sense to you. And I, I think that will be slightly different from person to person. Having said that, I enjoyed this last chapter. Uh, a lot of people hate it. A lot of people think it ruins the book. For me... While it is radically different in theme, it it takes what is effectively a, a police procedural with an unsolved mystery and no overt supernatural... I mean, there's a supernatural vibe. There are no overt supernatural happenings, just sort of impossibilities. This last chapter goes fully bizarre, strange, new age, mystical, whatever you want to call it. For me personally, it doesn't change what i think happens i mean i think we all have our own personal take on this like i said but for me it 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 melts perfectly with my vibes about the rest of the story that might not be the case for everybody so i enjoyed very much uh, this last last chapter it doesn't ruin it or change anything it doesn't change anything fundamental for me it just lays it out in a way that's slightly less ambiguous i won't say it's it's clear it still leaves a lot of stuff up in the air and it's a very It's in a very different tone, a very different register, but for me it doesn't change the overall vibe. So again, you can find it online with a bit of hunting if you care to do so, but um, not everybody I think will need to go there. So looking to start wrapping up on this Picnic Hanging Rock amazing book, amazing film... Uh, hopefully you've seen one or both i do recommend if you've just seen the film and enjoyed it i do recommend reading the book it's like i said it's kind of like the same story just fleshed out a little bit more peter weir really does hue very close to the novel and uh, you can i think you can enjoy commentary on one having maybe only experienced the other but hopefully it will make you want to check out both of them is it horror dare i say is it folk horror is it cosmic horror with all these elements of Of you know, terrible, unguessable amounts of time, with, with all of this sort of potentially supernatural, natural elements in the world that the characters live. I think so, and I think increasingly so. People are people are seeing it as a horror film, and people are seeing it as people are categorizing it as such. Not that categorization is tremendously important, but from the point of view of I see more and more horror fans recommending this to one another on websites and on social media and, and really enjoying it in, in the way that maybe we enjoy stuff like The Wicker Man, as I said way back at the beginning. So look, there's loads of there's loads of things in this book. It, it's, it's short, it's muscular, you'll get through it fairly quickly and even so we've only just barely scratched the surface. There are reads on this which focus on maybe the proto-feminism of it. There are reads on this which focus on the eroticism of it haven't had time to go there my own ball game is is really i love the colonial stuff that's what's really interesting to me i love the treatise of you know humans versus nature or humans within nature that's the stuff that excites me but this book is full of really really great stuff and you should absolutely check it out and but we have to leave it somewhere so as miranda herself says everything begins and ends at exactly the right time that's it for this episode folks hopefully you have enjoyed it if you want even more Picnic at Hanging Rock in your life there is of course a 2018 miniseries six episodes long it's okay you know it's quite different to the book and the film in some ways it's an extension of them in some ways you know we already have the book and the film and the world I don't mind that somebody tried to do something different with it. It doesn't take anything away from the originals. So check it out if you absolutely want more of it in your life. As for me, please, please, please check out my social media and click on those links so that you can go and send me a lovely coffee on Buy Me A Coffee or maybe leave me a lovely review or perhaps check out a Wide Atlantic Weird mug or t-shirt. Uh, if nothing else, please get in touch and tell me whether or not you like the episode. So on Twitter, as always, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. Now, until the next time, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object... He will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.